Hey guys, there's a little bit of fruity language in this episode. We want to give you that heads up. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to another episode of Outside In. I'm your host, Wes Rashid. Now, today is a story of one man's road to redemption. Once touted as the next Linford Christie, this man was one of the fastest men on earth. Yet a mistake he made cost him his athletic career and what was his life at the time. But I'd like to coin a phrase from the great Nelson Mandela himself. He once said that you never lose, you either win or learn. And for my next guest, he found out in failure that it's not about the facts, it's about how you react that makes you the person that you become. And with that, let's welcome the man himself, the athlete, the father, the coach, the mentor, Dwayne Chambers. Hello, Dwayne. Hey, I like that one. You like that one? Yeah, I do. <laughs> it's got me blushing, but you'd never tell. <laughs> good stuff. How you doing, my man? You, you keeping well? Yeah, I'm doing well. Life is good at the minute. Like I said out there, you're looking sharp. I'm still in the gym. Yeah. Getting in my my um my press-ups and my squats and all that going on. So even though I don't compete as much as I used to, it's still programmed in me to train. I find coming away from sport f- for a while, which I did, and not training, my energy was low. I was off. Sure. I had taken away one of the major components of my life. So I realised I've got to put that back. A, for my sanity, my mental health but also because I like eating. So, <laughs> so I have to make sure if I want to eat as much as I do, I've got to make sure I train equally. Ah, mate. Well, it's definitely paying off, hey? It is. I want to talk about your life growing up because I think there's a perception of this media personality, someone who was a former athlete, and I don't think there's a lot about people actually understanding where you came from and how you grew up as well. Mm-hmm. So with that, I've read your book, mm. amazing book, by the way, and I heard that your childhood was tough. So would you be able to explain a little bit more about those early years? So I grew up in North London, Islington, near Archway Station, Partington Close. It was renowned as being like L4 estate. So it was quite <laughs> a popular estate that we grew up on. And at the time, we were one of four or five black families on the road that lived along that, that, that patch. So with that, it was, it was quite a close-knit community and... My parents been at the time, I can't imagine the struggles they had to go through to get the property that they did, but they worked hard and they were able to house me and my two sisters. So there was, my, there was me, next sister down was Lorraine, and then my younger sister was Marie. So Lorraine and I had the same father, my, my dad, Robert, but I didn't find that out till later on in my life, which is weird. And then Marie was had by my stepfather. Did you find out? It just How did so you find happened out? to come up in convo. I just didn't really question it. I just thought we all had the same mum and dad. I just, even though last, my mum's my, my husband was my stepfather, I didn't put the numbers together. Yeah. Just didn't really sit down and think, mm, what's going on here? But as conversations took place as I got a little bit older, the truth about what happened um, surfaced. So then obviously my mum and my dad, Robert, were together but not together. And my dad was just all over the place. So he wasn't consistent in his responsibilities as a father, nor as a human being. He was just all over the place. And what made it apparent is when I used to go to, on every Saturday we had our chores. I had to hoover the house from top to bottom, go to the butcher shop to get meat that would last us for the duration of the week. And along my journey to the meat shop, I would always meet these women, not me personally, (laughs) 
But I'd always be walking and these women would say to me, Dwayne, where's your father? I'm like, I don't know, I haven't seen him. She goes, when you see him, tell him to call me. And I'll probably meet two women on the way down to the butcher shop and probably meet another two or three on the way up asking me the same question. And I didn't get it. Lo and behold, as I became older and I became a little bit of a free spirit, a bit like my father, not having, it's weird because I didn't really see him. So I didn't know how I picked up all these traits, but it just must be his personality. I then realised what he was doing and why he was doing it. He just liked the freedom of having all these women around him and it then came back on me because I just couldn't really understand what was going on. But lo and behold, I didn't really see my father much. Yeah, so my, your stepdad, who was so, quite strict. Right? It was my stepfather who laid the law of the land, not only with me, but within the house. So as a result of that, I guess as my stepfather saw me, he saw my dad and... I later on found out that my stepfather and my dad were friends. I don't know how good of friends they were, but they knew of each other. But obviously as my stepfather, my father moved off and done his own thing, my stepfather came in and obviously did the responsible thing of being a responsible husband and doing the best as he could be as a father to all three of us. But obviously I was the odd, the elephant in the room. So with that brought a lot of tension and was very uncomfortable because I never looked after as a child should be. And on days when my dad would come around and say, oh, how's things, does he hit you? Which I was getting battered all the time. I would just say no. Because I just thought, hmm, if I tell my dad that I'm getting hit by this guy, <laughs> I don't know if my dad's going to want to take me out and look after me because he's not responsible enough. And if I stay in this house, knowing that I've told the truth, I'm going to get even beaten and beaten even more. So I just thought it was best. And we're talking at Jesus, an early age of seven, eight, nine. Right. I created that coping mechanism to just lie. It was just also a lot easier. A on me and B, my mum and my sisters. So that went on for a while and things didn't get any easier. But as I started to become a little bit more confident in myself, I realised two kings can't live in one house. So there was two alphas? Two alphas. So your relationship with them was quite... Hostile. Yeah. Yeah, we were butting yeah. heads all the time. We were butting heads, but I never confronted him about it. I just confronted myself in my head, conversations in my head about, oh, I dislike him, I hate him. Why is he not letting us out the house? Why are we so restricted? There were incidents where during the summer holidays, if you can remember back to your childhood, summer holidays were like six weeks long. And I always remember summer holidays, the sun was out every single day. I don't ever remember it raining. And if it was, it was short spells. And for those five to six weeks, we would spend it in our rooms, in our house. We weren't allowed out. He wouldn't allow you out? We weren't allowed out. So you and saw the other kids playing outside? Correct. And even if he was out of the house, my mum didn't want to take the chance of letting us out and him come back and he's like, where's the kids? Because then that's aggro on her. So we spent a lot of our time in. And on, on the other occasion when we were allowed out, we were just like reckless. We're doing all the normal things that kids had been doing for years every summer. We were the first time I was experiencing it. So we're just wild playing knockdown ginger, all those things that you normally would do, but they've gone through that phase way ahead of us. So when we did it, naturally our parents would come and knock on your door, your son and your daughter done this. And lo and behold, we got in, we got beaten, weren't allowed out. <laughs> <laughs> so I laugh about it because I can now, but at the time it was just, it wasn't easy to deal with. So as time went on, I started to flourish in my athletics career. Was there a person or an event that got you into athletics? Because your sister was good as well. Yeah, I yeah. don't know the sister. We'll get into that later. Yeah. <laughs> sure. 
So it so happened that during my time at a school called St. Mark's Primary School, my teacher at the time, the head teacher at the time, Mr. Dave May, who I owe my life to, he he really, he'd always say to me, God, you give me hell in school, but boy, can you run? And he got very mischievous. So because I wasn't able to release any of my energy out in the summer or wherever, my unused energy spilt into the classroom. Sure. As you can naturally understand, if kids aren't getting the freedom that they want, it, it spills into an environment which disrupts other people. So then we're typically classed as having ADHD. It's just that we're just not using our energy. Yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah. it's spilled into the classroom and then it's spilled into the dining room and then it's spilled in places where it shouldn't have. So naturally I got in a lot of trouble, which then reverted back home and I got more beating. So it was just a vicious cycle. But then my primary school teacher, Mr. Dave May said, boy, you give me hell in the classroom, but boy, can you run? So I'm going to introduce you to this guy called Chris. Chris so happened to be a coach at our local athletics track, Fintry Park Athletics Track. And at this stage, this is when we had cinder tracks. So we didn't have the synthetic tracks that we do, we currently do. So Chris was my saving grace at the time. He would come and knock on the door and come and get me. So that got me out of the house with a valid reason. So I wasn't going and being disruptive. I was actually doing something that was organised sport. So I would be training with Chris and Chris had me... He didn't really know what skills or talents I had, neither did I. So as time I went along, Chris entered me for a cross-country competition. I didn't know what cross-country meant. All I remember was that I felt like I was running for hours. It could have been just been an 800-metre runner, for all I know, but right. I felt like I was running for hours because I'm just used to the sprinting everywhere. I tell you what kind of sprint I was. My friends used to have Mustang and chopper bikes, and they would have all their bikes. I never had a bike. And I would still run past them and beat them. Because that's one thing you kind of look for. If you're looking for talent ID, if you could find a kid that can run faster than a person on a bike, you know you've got something. Did you identify in yourself that you had this talent for sprinting? Yeah, but I just didn't understand what I had. I just knew that you told me to run, I could do that just like that. Sure. As easy as you and I breathe, I could just run. So Chris entered me for this cross country. I ran the cross country and all these other kids went flying off. They ran so fast that the mud was kicking me in my face. So I was, you know, I was, I was already disorientated. And I realised I had to run for longer than nine or ten seconds, which was very uncomfortable for me. So I remember getting to a stage in the run. I was like, I don't want to do this no more. And I was searching for an opportunity or a person to look for to, to come and rescue me, but there was nobody around. So I remember running and I saw this log ahead of me. And I thought, all right, I'm going to run to that log, trip up, and hopefully somebody will come and save me. I got to the log, deliberately tripped up, fell in the mud, peered my head up, looked around, nobody there. So I thought, nobody's going to come and help me, are they? And, I was, and in my head, I was talking, I was like, nope. So you best get up and finish. I got up, finished the run, and the weirdest experience, something I'd never experienced before, I finished the run and I got cheered. I got praised. I got welcomed. And I thought, I've never experienced that before. This was weird. Why did I not get this in my house? I'm trying and I... Thought I'd felt, but I was getting rewarded for it. That was one of your earliest memories of ever getting that kind of praise. Correct. Because it wasn't in my house. So how did that make you feel then? Were you confused? Were you... I was very confused. Yeah. And now I look back on it, I'm like, why as a black family were I getting praised? But why were white people praising me? How does that work? Why are they doing that? Which then prompted me to do more competitions. And the more competitions I did, the more praise I got outside of my house. I'll go home and say, Mum, I won a gold medal. No disrespect to them. Or my dad, I went, oh, great. Go and tidy your room. Great. Go and wash the dishes. 
great, go and take out the trash. So was when you were a kid and you were getting this validation because you were winning races, was that also your form of escapism then? Yeah. Yeah. It enabled me to get away. I craved, I feasted off of the, the rewards I was getting. I liked it. I wanted to get out of the house more and more. But it came to a stage where Chris couldn't look after me anymore. He had other responsibilities, maybe family commitments. So he handed me over to this young man called Selwyn Filbert. Now, I always refer to Selwyn Filbert as a customato to Mike Tyson. That's a great analogy, aren't it? Because mm. he found a young man who had an inherent skill, an ability, a chip on the shoulder, but was able to keep that chip warm enough that it still was crispy on the outside, warm and fluffy on the inside. So there was a little bit of the human side of me, soft side of me, but I was rough and rugged and raw outside. And he turned that into an individual who, within two years of being with Seven Field, became the fastest kid on the planet. This was when you were 16, yeah? 16, 17. Yeah. I became the fastest kid on the planet. And when I revert back, when I wasn't allowed out for the summer holidays, I was born in Partington Close, but I was made in my bedroom. I would spend hours watching out the window, wishing I could be as free as all the others, run up and down. So that vision, although I wasn't able to express it, I had to see it in my mind. If I was out playing, what would I be doing? How would I jump that wall? How would I have climbed that tree? So I created my future in my mind, in my bedroom. I'm talking, probably talking three or four years, five years of not being out out for summers. Yeah. So you're just building this energy, this drive. Building. And you've got that curiosity mm -hmm. that then forms motivation to 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 then to go, go, and, go and compete. Yeah. So on one hand, being denied this was a good thing because a lot of the, my friends who were out gallivanting throughout summers, within a few years, they were dead, in jail, or just off committing all sorts of petty crime. So did you have any role models at that point that you could look up to? No. The only person that really stood out were people that I saw on television. And typically you would think Linford Christie was my role model. He wasn't. It was actually Boris Becker. Really? Weirdly enough. And why this took place is, I remember one of my birthdays, I can't remember how old I was, but I remember getting this small little card with Boris Becker on it. It was like a Trump card. You know, those game cards and it's got these yeah, little yeah, stats yeah. on the back yeah, yeah. and it had him on it and it came with a little bag that you probably put your trainers in or football boots in when you finish your sport so I got those two little things and when I saw Boris Becker I didn't really clock who he was but I remember seeing this card and seeing him on the television and I thought oh that's an association I've got some form of recollection of who this person is so I recall watching him on TV and I kind of had a synergy with him he's out on his own hitting the ball cheering getting rejoiced and I thought oh he does, he gets cheers when he wins a point, but he also gets very angry when he doesn't get a point. And I could relate to that in so to many that ways. Behavior, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he became a beacon of hope for me for a long period of time. So I kept that card on my wall and I said, I want to be like him. Then as time progressed, athletics will come on, Olympic Games, then I saw Liverpool Christie and I saw a black person who got the same rewards for doing well, was angry when he, dis when he didn't win, but he was the same colour as me. I thought, oh, this is interesting. Who's this guy? He then became my role model. So Boris Becker, unfortunately, got taken off my wall. <laughs> I took off all the little blue tack, took him off, gently put him down, and then Limpford became my beacon of hope at the time. So then 
he got put on my wall amongst other things. So during this period of time when I wasn't able to get out, I had a vision board, not realising what I was actually doing. So I would constantly sit through catalogues that would go through my mum's door and I'll cut out pictures of things I wanted, newspaper articles, I saw BMWs, I saw cars, saw houses, I saw destinations that I wanted to visit. So I've just cut them out. I've got this big, massive A5 sheet of paper and I'll just glue them on. And I'll have that picture right next to my wall. Don't you think it's fascinating, like when you're a kid, that you went ahead and you cut out those photos mm -hmm. of all these prized material possessions? Because I think when you're so young as well, like your value system it hasn't really properly been formed. Mm. So you think, well, if I've got these things and I've got this freedom and I've got this money, and I've got that car and I'm getting all the plaudits that Lymphor Christie yep. and Boris Becker has, yeah, that's happiness right there. It is. There. And it was, and it was something I looked at, studied all the time and then it became a kind of a fading thing in the back of my mind. But the, the images of these things, I wanted, was always there. So it became mm -hmm. a subconscious vision that was always there for me. As I started to become more successful in sport, obviously going from a kid being locked up in a room for days, hours, weeks, months, and they became somebody who was in the public eye. How do you deal with that? So that you were, I think, around about 18 or mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. You were getting more attention. More attention. From I, the press. I was earning, I went from nothing to then starting earning more money than my parents. You got a lot of contracts and sponsorship deals, right? I think you were the second highest athlete behind David Beckham at the time. Yeah. This is at 17, 18. Later on, I got earned that mega money, but I started to earn more money than my parents. And I didn't know how to have a conversation because I didn't have a relationship with them. So I couldn't say, Mum, what do I do with this? Was there anyone at that point that was advising you? I had my coach, Sowen Philbert. He tried to introduce me to some agents, but I was reluctant. Yeah. Because I didn't have a coping mechanism with talking. I didn't know how to talk to people. And yeah. in trust, because I didn't trust myself. And it was weird because whenever I told the truth, or me and my sister told the truth, we got beaten. Whenever we lied, we got beaten. So I didn't know where I stood. So I wasn't sure if I told the truth on what I wanted to do, whether I'd get ridiculed or punished for it. So I just always rejected any form of support, any form of constructive criticism that was given to me. I'd just reject it and throb them off or leave that person. That stemmed over into my relationship with women, any form of management. So if a female was telling me stuff that I didn't want to hear, I would dump her and go off. Yeah, Not realising that she's an extra pair of eyes that's seen me going in the direction that's not good, but I didn't know how to cope with that. Same with my mum and my dad when they were trying to give advice, I just rejected it. Agents rejected it. Was that just your ego? Was that naivety? What do you, what do you think that comes down to? My inability to yeah. sit and talk and listen. Yeah. And my views was not developed as a child. It was always surrounded by physical abuse. So how do you sit and talk and listen when every time you've sat and spoken, you've got beaten for it? So how do you develop that skill? I couldn't. I didn't know how to. That got beaten out of me. So I had to do what was best for me at the time. And that was just run and hide away from everything else. So popularity started to escalate. I was more in the public eye. I was on camera. I was on the TV, not really having a clue what the hell was going on. And it all seemed to happen just overnight. 
when you're in a lockdown type of environment, it seems boring, but that's what's building you. And in one hand, even though I was restricted from all these opportunities to go out and play, it kept me out of trouble. And it's probably the best thing for me. Because if I was out gallivanting, then we would not be having this conversation. And all the time you were training hard, that you were it. focused on winning. Yeah. I didn't even uh, know about winning. I just, I was just free. I was free. I was out the house. I was getting all the praise and rejoice and I wasn't getting any of the physical abuse anymore. Linford Christie, who was your role model, mm -hmm. you hooked up with his stable and was uh, he was he was training at one point. Was that in Wales? He, funny enough, because even though he was my idol, I then said I wanted to meet him. Yeah. In the back of my mind, I just thought, oh, I'd love to meet this guy. And the first time I did come across him was when I was at probably the three A's championships. That's what it was called at the time. But me meeting him for the first time was him in his element on the track. So I couldn't really go up to him and say, hi, Linford, I'm doing. He just gave me a growl and was <laughs> putting on his intimidating performances to get himself in the right mindset for the competition. So that didn't go down too well. But over time, as I began to improve his, my physical abilities, he then took me on as one of his athletes. So not so much coaching me, but managing me as a whole. Sure. So at the time I was being coached, I'd, I'd left Selwyn Filbert and I started to work with another great athlete called Mike McFarlane. So Mike McFarlane was coaching me, but Linford was sta Linford stable, enough respect, as we call it at the time, was uh, managing me. So I got to meet him, got to go to his house. So again, that then later on in life showed me the power of whatever you think can materialise. All the things I had on my vision board I got cars, the house, the destinations, all the athletes I wanted to meet, the Carl Lewis's, the Michael Johnson's, I met them all. So that then proved to me that that works. The only sad thing is I got all these things and I didn't create another vision board. Mm -hmm. I just folded yeah. up that A5 piece of paper, put it to one side and then that's when things started to go wrong. That's when things started to go wrong. You climbed the first mountain not realising there's another one to There's climb another one to climb and I didn't have, I didn't prepare for that because I didn't realise with all these goals and ambitions that I wanted, there comes a responsibility to A, maintain that lifestyle and B, what's next? I didn't know about what's next. If I had listened to what was being offered from others, wrote this all down and come to my own conclusion on what I need to do, then things would have been better. But I didn't. I just wanted it here and now because it was there. It just got me out of the house. I was free. I could buy all the things I wanted to buy. I could do what I wanted to do. I could travel where I wanted to travel. And there was no one to stop me. But you kept... Winning, kept do, doing really well, got you to the Olympic final, mm -hmm. Sydney, the year 2000. Mm. So I want to tap into your mindset as an athlete versus Dwayne Chambers, the human here, right? Because I've always wondered what it was like to step onto the 100 metre track when you've got the likes of Morris Green, John Drummond, I think Dar Darren Campbell was in the final as well. Robert Daly Thompson. Exactly, yeah. What is actually going through your mind at that point? Well, it's a build-up. Because obviously throughout the summer, you'll be competing against these athletes in Diamond Leagues, all these things. So you get used to, to the same characters week in, week out. And over time, you learn, A, a lot about yourself, how you conduct yourself in that environment, and B, you kind of get a, a sense of how they operate. So in the early stages of my career or any athlete's career really you you're overwhelmed with the environment because you go from running a really fast time or doing a great performance then you get invited to the big league 
And that in itself is overwhelming. And that's an experience and an, a feeling that you've never ex been exposed to before. You've got athletes you've been watching on the TV or idolised right next to you. You've got reporters asking you questions. You've got cameras on you 24 hours a day. You've got the media requesting your time. You've got your sponsor saying, you've got to wear this kit. You've got your agent saying, you need to make sure you're here on time. This is your train ticket. You've got to do X, Y, and Z. So all these responsibilities are thrusted upon you. Your menu of responsibility has gone from three or four to a list of 10 to 12. How do you cope with that? So you no longer become, you have an, you're an athlete with responsibility. You've got that big S on your chest. You've now become a target. You are now another problem for the top level athletes. So they start their intimidating games to throw you off. So you no longer re rely on your physical ability. It now becomes a game of psychological warfare. Who's got the best poker face? Who can dish out the most intimidation and stay calm? How do you perform when the pressure's on? How well do you think you did that? <laughs> Without tooting my own home very well. <laughs> <laughs> Only because I was just, in my mind, I was just like, you ain't better than me. It's a great mindset to have. You just ain't better. You're human. You bleed like me. You take the crap, the, the rubbish out just like me. All of that. You just ain't better than me. But the flip side of that is if you don't win, like the, that's devastating, right? Yeah. And that's another area that I struggled with. Because throughout my career, yes, I had the small little losses, but when it came to the big st stage, I was like, I ain't losing to you lot. I don't care who you are, how old you are, how experienced you are, I'm going there to win. But I didn't have a plan B on how you cope with the losses. So going from a junior to winning everything, to then to the senior ranks, where you've taken yourself up that ladder and competing against athletes who are A, more educated, physical abilities more superior than yours. And their mindset is on a level that mine's not coped with yet. I've got everything they've got, the drive, but I haven't got the coping mechanisms and the mental steps to take when a race doesn't go well and how do you bounce back? I didn't know how to do that. So how did you act? I chucked my bags everywhere. Yeah. Kicked off, stormed out, went home. Coaches trying to say, Dwayne, calm down, back off. All of that. Didn't know how to cope with it. But that fire got me back the next week to compete and I'd win again. But every time I had a loss, there was a build-up of, I always refer to <laughs> bricks and the cement in between yeah. was quite fragile. So every time I lost, the stability of my bricks fractured and it was wobbling. If I had a better coping mechanism, the cement between each brick would be thicker, it would be more stable. That's what those guys had on me. My foundations were poor. In order to build a house, you need solid foundation. And my foundations were poor. I was like the three pigs and the wolf. The wolf was easily able to blow my house down. I was too fragile. So as a result, going up to that top level, I had a lot more losses than wins. But if you can put it into comparison, those losses were not bad losses. I was still finishing fourth in the world. You were in an Olympic final, right? I mean, obviously, you can look back now. Of course. But at the time, at devastating. Time. Yeah, it was devastating. So, so how much would you put down to it being a mental game versus the physical game and all the prep that you put in towards it's all mental. that match? It's all mental. This computer is the best computer in the world. It builds computers, it builds houses, it builds software. It can help people who can't have children have children. This is the best computer in the world. We all have it. Just some people choose to use it differently or not use all of it. We're skilled in certain parts. My ability is, is the focus. 
I have the ability to keep my eyes forward. So people always ask me, when you're on the start line, you're so intimidating. Why is that? I said, I've just got that type of face, for one. <laughs> but when I'm staring down the line, that line, that lane I'm in is mine. And on the left and right side of me are doors. These doors are constantly opening with words. Oh, you're rubbish. Your stepdad said this. My past is always opening. Yeah. So my focus is making sure I keep those doors shut. Just making sure that those they, those thoughts don't get in. They don't get in. And they will creep open every now and again. Gotcha. Yeah. So when I run, I run to keep those doors shut. The moment I allow one of them to open, my attention is gone. I'm easily distracted. So my focus is that. Was that for you a lot of work to do? Or did you kind of build that conditioning over I time? I built that conditioning yeah. over time. Yeah. And something I still use to this day. So my coping mechanism now is when I'm having a, a hard time, I don't conversate with myself. Yeah, that's good. I don't conversate. In here, I put it down on paper. I let it lie for a while. I'll go and walk off somewhere and I'll come back to it. And if it's something I can deal with, I will deal with it. If it's not, then I'll get help. Friends, family, relatives. To just talk about just it. Just talk about it. Yeah. And what I do with that is I take all the information and then I come to my own conclusion on what I should do. That's how then I become a leader of my direction. I don't take somebody's advice and say, oh, well, John said this, I should do that. No. I take it all in, come to my own conclusion and say, right, this is the best direction for me to go in. So, performing, not doing well in certain stages. And then one of those doors opened and I left it open. And the door that opened was the curiosity to know what other people are doing. Did you think at that time that other athletes were using performance enhancers? At the time, I didn't know what performance enhancers were. And what I mean by that is what they consisted of, what they looked like, how you take them. We were told tons and tons of stories as I got further up the ladder. Watch out for people who would walk around with brown paper bags. I just thought it was a fairy tale. I didn't really know because it hadn't been exposed to me. Like people would ask me, have you experienced racism? I didn't know what that was. Right. I didn't know. Whenever I went out, I was referred to as Mr. Chambers, not anything else. So I didn't know what that was like. Somebody was told about watching out for those crooked agents and stuff. So I was like, okay, whatever. And I had enough people around me to kind of protect me. But yeah, they're around me four or five hours of a day. There's still an X amount of hours when I'm by myself. I can easily be phoned up, emailed, called. Sure. Yeah. So I'm out of their sight for a long period of time. And that's you're easily influenced. You only learn by loss. You learn more by losing than you do by winning. Oh, yeah, 100%. So I encourage it. So I've, all the losses I've gone through have been necessary. Because if I hadn't gone through them, I wouldn't know how to react to them. The fact that somebody offered me performance enhancers, I was just like, mm, what do I do here? But before then, you were just looking for another coach. And I think you wanted an American coach at the time. So it was it was a pure decision you just needed a change I wanted set up. Is that right? Yeah, I wanted a change. At the time, Mike McFarland, my coach, was working full-time, so we could only train us in the evening, which means I had too many hours in a day to just... <sighs> I was a mess. I had too many hours in a day. Instead of me studying or doing something, a course, or investing my money in other things, I was just... <sighs> you never want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I just was wasn't it? occupying my time <laughs> properly. I just wasn't. Were you partying? Partying. Women. That's... I had too many, too much hours on my hands. You you went up to Wales? Did yeah. You, did you hang just, out in Wales? I was just all over the place. Yeah. I was a mess. 
behind the scenes, on the surface, I was all smelling of roses, but behind the scenes, I was just a mess. So I said to my coach at the time, my agent at the time, I need to find out what's going on with the Americans. How are they able to run as fast as they do, as consistently as they do, and what are we doing different? So I just put it down to the fact that, oh, they train in the day, I train at night, maybe. So we got hooked up with a coach in America, Remy Chemney. You were 22 at the time? Around that, yeah. Yeah. I was still finishing fourth in the world, still doing great. Sponsors were happy, agents were happy. Under 10 seconds as well. Under 10 seconds. Sponsors were happy with what I was doing. I was making great progress. Had more than enough money. So it wasn't about the money. For me, I wasn't winning. And I didn't see that as progress. So I thought, I want to win. Now, if I had my vision board, my goals for winning would have been specific. But because I had no longer had my vision board, I had no purpose. Sure. Which left all my doors open. All my doors just... And opened. That's when anyone looking for an opportunity, anyone looking for an individual who's desperate, my little aura was floating around. I was looking for someone to help me get to number one in the world. And if the right person sends out the right signal, he's going to find my aura and we're going to match. That match came in the shape and form of Victor Conti in Miami. How did that first encounter go? So we was out there for a couple of weeks. And I remember training, not thinking anything different. Like, okay, training's the same. They just do it in a fancier venue and they've got therapists who are a little bit more up to speed with things. I thought, okay. And then Victor came over and he goes, hi, Dwayne, I've been looking out for you. <laughs> and I was like, who's this guy? And I looked up to Remy and he, Remy said, he's okay. He's okay. Because I said some stuff along the lines. He goes, I know what you need. And I said, what do I need? He goes, pharmacology. And I said, what's pharmacology? At the time, I was like, what the hell is that? I didn't have Google Maps or Google yeah, 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 to like, sure. look for those things. I didn't have anything to kind of look in addiction. I'm like, what the hell is pharmacology? And he goes, look, I've been working with these guys for a while. And there was a number of high-profile athletes on the grounds. And he goes, go and talk to these guys and um, they'll tell you about me. So I went up and said hello to everyone. Again, these are athletes who were on a, that level that I was aspiring to be on. One individual in particular um, who was formerly on the programme was very hostile towards me and I don't understand why. Tim Montgomery. Mm -hmm. So he was very harsh with his response to me and I didn't understand. What did he say? So I went up to Tim, I was like, yo, Tim, what's up? And he goes, yo, tell that nigga Victor Conti to suck my dick. And I was like, and walked off and I was like, why has he been like that with me? Lo and behold, I went back and I goes, what's up with Tim? And he goes, huh, I'll tell you later, this is me saying to Victor, what's up with Tim? He goes, I'll tell you another time. So I just thought, okay. So time went by. We finished our training camp in Miami. I went home. At this time, Victor and I had been talking. I ended up going back to San Francisco on my own because I was with a bunch of people that I'm not going to mention. So I went back on my own. <laughs> and I recall going into the office. <laughs> Before that, I had to tell my agents to um, wire some money over because this is my nutritional plan. Okay. So I don't know what kind of nutritional plan cost 20 grand, but that's what I had to transfer <laughs> over. Well, I don't have to. I chose to transfer that amount. And they were like, what's it for? I said, look, it's cool. Just sort it out. So the money got transferred over. I went back over to San Francisco, sat in the office. We had a long sit down and talk about the program, what it entails. And to be fair, I'd already been sold when Victor said, I can take you from being number five in the world to number one in the world. 
Is that how he explained it to you? In so to speak, so many words. There was a lot more in between it. But the fact he said from number five, which I was, to number one, I thought, right, I'm getting on that rocket ship and going straight there. I didn't even ask what it entailed. Again, by not being specific about my goals and ambitions, I left myself open to anything, which meant I wanted to win at all costs. So when you see Neo and Morpheus on the table, the red and the blue pill, I wanted to know how deep that rabbit hole, that rabbit hole went. So I chose, which pill is it? The red or the blue? Is it the blue pill? I think it's the blue pill. I think it's the blue. I think it's the blue. Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, go, let's go with blue, that. Yeah, he took the blue pill. <laughs> so that blue pill was equivalent to me being in the office and saying, I'm in. What happened next was just beyond me because I didn't realise in order to take yourself to that level, the things I would have to do, the number of injections I had to take, the number of pills I had to pop, the number of blood and urine tests I had to take. Is it hard? Talk, you talking about it now? No, because every time I speak about these things, it resurfaces it gotcha. in more detail. It becomes more clear and clear every single time. And then more and more stuff pops up. So then I spent, for the first, Jesus, six weeks, I spent more time in the hospital making sure our balance was right. I wasn't overdosing on EPO. I wasn't overdosing on all these other bits and pieces. Don't get me wrong. I didn't have to say yes, but I chose to say yes. I believed that... Everyone else was doing it. And that was it. I didn't think anything else. I And there were other athletes on the program that was doing this. They were doing it, yeah. Which, lo and behold, they were because they all got found out. And the reason for Tim's hostility towards me and Victor was the fact that he was also on the program. And there was a dispute between Victor and Tim. Was no longer on the program. Victor, I guess Victor cut him off. So I think Tim must have had a small sample of THG left. And in my opinion, he must have said, well, if I'm going down, you're all going down and handed it in to the drug testers. Yeah, yeah. Because at the time, it wasn't on their list, right? It wasn't on their list. So they didn't know what to look for. It was a little grey when they were testing it, but it wasn't matching what was recognised as the anabolic steroid. And that's what you need for the failed test, yeah? Yeah. yeah. It has to match something that's proven to be synthetic and obviously it's enhancing performance. So without realising it, my career was over without realising it. And one of the many words Victor says, and it always sticks in my mind, he said, don't come crying when the paparazzi come calling. And he meant that, didn't he? He meant it. And I never really understood. I said, what do you mean? He goes, don't come crying when the paparazzi come calling. Did you ever worry about getting caught? Yeah, all the time. From the moment I took that first injection, I thought, I don't want to do this. But I didn't know how to stop and pull away. Again, not being honest from a child to a youth, to a teenager, to an adult, I didn't know how to tell the truth. Whenever I told it, I got punished. Whenever I denied it, I got punished. So I didn't know where I stood. So by taking that injection, I realised I'd screwed up already. My career was done. It was no longer about being an athlete. I wasn't an athlete no more. Did you have anyone to turn to? In my opinion, once you go down that road, the only people you rely on is the people who are supplying you. So then a year into the programme, I think it was gold at the European, mm -hmm. and you shaved, I'm going to say this wrong now, one-tenth? Yeah, so I went from 997, which I did legally, to 987, which equaled Linford's British and European record at the time. Now, if I had been wise enough and patient enough, I would have done that anyway. So how do you reconcile that in your mind? That, you know, you're on this programme, yeah, you've achieved, you know, you've got gold in the Europeans, you've shaved off the tenth of your time, but then there's this other 
part of you going, yeah, I would have done that anyway? Well, when I weighed it all up, there was more pain for really, very little gain. I went through a lot of pain for very little gain. It was a tenth of a second. I could have done that. It may have taken me 10 or 15 years in my career, but I would have done it. If I was persistent or focused enough, I would have done it. You would have found steps, strategies, methods to get that, achieve that, because it's been proven. There have been a lot of profile, high-profile athletes who have achieved goals just by hard work and determination. But I chopped that down to a year. I bypassed all the hard work, the dedication, the team effort. I missed all of that. Instead of driving an M25 and taking my time to get to Wales in two or three hours, I jumped on a freaking <laughs> <laughs> rocket ship and was riding on fumes. I, I went past the petrol stations. I missed all these roundabouts. I missed all these exits. I got loads of parking fines. I got loads of parking tickets. I got loads of flashback cameras. There was too many warnings that when you're progressing A as an athlete or B as an individual or C as a business person, mm-hmm. you've got to go through all these little obstacles. So when you're young athletes or your young members of staff or people in the establishment are learning, you can teach them the steps. I had no process. Only because I'm replaying this stuff all over again and starting again, I can teach the steps. But I bypassed all of that and just took performance enhancers, which got me straight there. But as a consequence, it meant I had to lie, I had to cheat, which I was doing. Mm-hmm. I was dishonest to supporters, friends, family. My friends would come around my house and I had to take all my stuff out of my fridge, get a small little fridge upstairs, hide it. When my girlfriend came around the house at the time, I had to move that fridge somewhere else. And the only people you could really turn to are the people that are supplying you. Yeah. You become very distant because you can't be yourself. You're constantly watching your back. In the months that you heard news about your failed test, it sounded as if you were like almost in self-destruct mode because you, you, were, you weren't following the programme. A lot started to happen. So 2002, I won the Europeans. 2003, I started to... I wasn't enjoying what I was doing. Because mm-hmm. it wasn't fun anymore. What was it about that that wasn't fun anymore for you? The fact that I had to rely on something to get me where I wanted to be. I was putting my career and trust and belief in somebody else's hands. I'd taken all this genetic makeup and hard work from my primary school teacher... As harsh as it was, my mum and dad, my stepdad, feeding us every day. Dave May, Mr. Dave May, taking me to Chris, Chris, taking me to Selwyn, Selwyn, taking me to Matt McFarlane. All of that had just been put in somebody else's hands. And unfortunately, I don't know whether Victor trusted himself or not, but he just went like that. So when I fall, everyone else falls, that's it. And there was no way of me picking it up. I didn't know when he had let all this go. Because this became... Apparently, I wasn't the only one that was on the program. There's 29 other people on the program. That's too many fires burning. Too many. It's only a matter of time before somebody just stops and does something wrong. I've done something wrong. I didn't take my sample properly. So I got hurt, which means I had to come off the program, go back on it. Did you think like your performance is just going to deteriorate if you stopped? Yeah. And I was afraid yeah. that if I'd done that, I'd go from number... One to number two, somebody else would be, I would then be as disgruntled as Tim Montgomery was. Mm-hmm. I then then looked at my contract and realised I have to maintain the top three in the world to maintain the money I was getting. With your sponsorship With my sponsors. So that then further pushed me to stay on the programme. Because if I came off, this lifestyle I created would be lost and I wouldn't know how to maintain that because all I knew was running. Yeah, lots at stake. There was no backup. There was no education. 
no schooling, no qualification. I didn't have none of that. So in order to fund this lifestyle, I had to go out and do what? Run. What did it feel like then, getting that call to say that you'd failed the THD test? THG test? When I was away on holiday with my girlfriend at the time, I remember my phone ringing, I was like, ah, who's this? And because I picked it up and it was like, hi, Dwayne, my name's Dave Herbert. I have some disappointing news for you. You failed a drug, drug test for THG. And I was like, what's THG? All we knew it as was the clear and the cream. The clear and the cream. That's what we're talking about. Uh, yeah. Okay. Because there was something that you rubbed on. Correct. Yeah. And when he said THG, I was like, I was like what's that? Because I suggest you pack your bags, come home. <laughs> and I put the phone down and I just said to my girlfriend, I've just failed a drug test. And she's like, what? I said, we need to go home now. We'd probably been on holiday, what, three or four days? And my heart just stopped. So part of me was relieved. In fact, a big part of me was relieved, but at the same time, I was just, I was absolutely just crapping myself, thinking, what the hell? You're going back to those days when your stepdad used to beat you. I was like, what the hell? So then we flew back home. The whole flight, I was just panicking. Didn't say a word on the whole flight home. As you can imagine, I just didn't say a word. I was just on mute. Got home, said to my partner at the time, just go home. And then I sat down in rooms with lawyers and advisors and I've just been told, look, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. And all in my mind, I was thinking, I just want to run away. <laughs> but what got you through those years then, when you were banned? Fortunately, time elapsed and I spent a huge portion of my time on my own with friends and just, it was covering up the silence. I didn't want to be on my own. So I would have had a lot of people around me. I couldn't stay at home and think by myself because that would have just been self-destructive. And then I met my now wife, Leonie, and we had our first child, Sky. So mm -hmm. thankfully, he came along, she came, they came along at the right time because it gave me a focus, which then enabled me to reevaluate what I did, why I did it, and what I want to do about it. And a lot of the time, even though everything was on me, I was always pointing a finger at everybody else, blaming it them. But little did I know, there was three other fingers pointing back at me, making me realise I've got things that I need to address. They never made the decision, I did. And I think when it got to a point that I am responsible for my actions, I'm responsible for everything I do, then that was my way of realising this is the first stage of maturity. You've got to grow up now, buddy. You're not a child no more. You're an adult, you're not going to get beaten for this anymore. You're going to get punished, don't get me wrong, but you're not going to go for the physical side of things. But you're going to experience something that you've somewhat dealt with before from a young age, but this is on a massive scale. For sure. This and it not... was in the public eye as well. That's... Correct. So on, on the first instance, statements were put out saying it was a mistake and I didn't realise what I was doing. But deep down, I knew what I was doing. And as far as I was concerned, if I'm going to get back into this sport, which I want to do because I love it, I just took advantage of it because it gave everything to me. It gave me an opportunity to get a passport. It gave me an opportunity to fly around the world. It gave me an opportunity to see some world-class athletes and it gave me an opportunity to inspire hundreds and thousands and millions of people. But I took advantage of that. So with great power comes what? Great responsibility, my and man. I chose not to take the responsibility. I just was selfish. So as a result of that, I just realised, I thought, right, I've got to sort this out. So that was my focus. I said, I'm going to fix this. I don't know how I'm going to fix it, but I'm going to fix it. And all I literally had to do was just keep on walking forward. I kept on walking forward down that track. All those doors were open, I had to go in every single door. And every single door I went through got shut. They kicked me out and it got shut. 
But I just had to keep on walking forward. Can you help me? No, shut the door. Can you help me? Yeah, I can help you. Then I got, got shafted again more and more rogue agents. That set me back four or five more doors. I had to start all over again. So the discipline of sport enabled me to get through. You getting to a point where you took 100% responsibility. Mm -hmm. How long did that take for you to do that? I'm still working on it. <laughs> but it came to a point... When did I confess about the book? I think it was 2006, 2000. So you stepped you step back into the athletics track in 2006 Six, as well, yeah. 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 So when I came back in, yes, the environment was a bit hostile for obvious reasons, because at the time I was still, I still hadn't acknowledged and been open and honest about what I did. I was still fighting. I thought my performances on the track will gain me the respect, but no, I still hadn't addressed the, the elephant in the room. Why did I do it? Look what it's done to the sport. Look what it's done to my friends and family. Look what it's done to the sponsors. Look what it's done to those who are looking at me from the ground level up, thinking, oh, this guy's great. He's done it all clean, he's amazing, he's smiley, he's, hot, he's, you know, he's, he's presentable, but he's done this. So I thought, Jesus. When that was presented to me, it made me realise, I thought, jeez. So that means whenever I make a decision, I've got to factor all these things in. And that was a hard one to toy with, because sometimes you've got to make a decision for you. But then now I realise you've got to make a decision and think about the effects. Because if what you're doing doesn't benefit others, then there's no point doing it. Because it's all these other components behind you that help build you. It takes a team of people to make this planet go around. 100%. It takes a team of people to build this studio. Do you realise that? The impact of your decisions can either be favourable or unfavourable. And mine so happened to be unfavourable. And part of what you've learned throughout your career you've put it into Chambers for Sport mm -hmm. to help nurture young talent. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think you started in 2009. Yeah. So what made you decide to go down that route? Funny, because I just thought, right, I don't want to run no more. This is just me being this, not looking at all the positives. I was still in a somewhat of a negative mindset. Mm -hmm. And I thought, there's nothing else I'm good at, but what am I going to do? I'm not going to go work a nine to five. I'm just not going to go and do that. But equally, I have a skill set that can be used. It's just, how am I going to do that? And how does that look? And my wife said, why don't you go and coach? And I'm like, oh, I can't coach. Why am I going to go and do that? The sport hates me and I hate the sport. But then I thought to myself, I don't really hate the sport. And she said, start coaching. I'm like, nah. I don't want to coach kids that are going to be up against people who've done what I did. But then I thought to myself, this is beyond sport. This is life. Because we all come up against situations, people who take shortcuts. Mm -hmm. And you just got to learn to handle that. But there's a process to that. You can either jump on their bandwagon and think the way they think and act the way they act, or you can create your own little metaverse, so to speak, and have individuals who believe in what you believe in. Because there are individuals out there that believe the way you believe. And you've just been a beacon of hope for them, and you're walking in the direction they want to go in. What you have to do then is put your hand up so they can follow. So I said, all right, I'll coach. But then my next biggest challenge was, how am I going to convince parents to trust me? Mm -hmm. What did you do? I just advertised, turned up at the track. And you went into the communities as well. Yeah. Went into yeah. communities, done a lot of talks. Yeah. Built up a reputation for giving back. And as athletes, we have a responsibility to do that. If you've gone down a road which is good or bad, you have a responsibility to put that information out there. So young kids have a reference point. During my young age, nobody was talking about the highs and lows of performance enhancers. It was, it was taboo. Nobody spoke about it. So if I had heard it from 
one of my idols, I've done this and this is why, then maybe I'll be like, oh, I can see what that produces. Yes, you bloody run fast. Yes, we all know that. But the consequences of that, the impact that it has on everything else, that would have probably been a good thing for me to see and witness and experience and feel. But because I had no reference point of that in my archives and my mind, I thought, okay, I guess it's okay to do it. Having learned all that, then what values do you instill in these young athletes? Well, the evidence is right in front of them. When they ask me what I did and why and how, I explain. And I said, you as individuals are going to come across situations and people who are going to do exactly the same thing as I did. Now, you either A, follow them and end up worse than I did, or B, you choose the wrong route. And the long route is going to be boring and tedious, but from it, you gain so much more. So what if you did take the long route, you learn more about yourself. What if you do take the long route, you learn more about the sport. But all these things have a process and a purpose and it's necessary. Because what you go through, others can learn from. So you've got to think about the effect. And that's something I didn't have or do, whereas I do it now. Because I feel not only will they be challenged in sport, they'll be challenged in life. And now they've got a reference point. So if they either come across a situation, they can either look at podcasts mm-hmm. or they can come to the source and I'll talk to them through it. If you want to make that decision, that's up to you. But think about the, the, the impact it's going to have on A, your parents, the sport and, and all the above. So by that, they can then come to their own conclusion on what they want to do. But if they've never had this reference point or someone they can talk to, they're never going to know. So that is why I've always said that what's happened to me was necessary. Because mm-hmm. of all the athletes that have been busted in the past, <laughs> I put my hands up and said, this is what I've done. Yeah, you came 100% clean as well and thrust yourself into the spotlight where you were yeah. branded yeah. a label. Yeah. Yeah, just going back, how do you, there must have been some dark moments, man. Ah, and they still are. I still wobble every now and again with it. Because I think for those that are listening, they might go through their own struggles. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've made like a really, really big mistake. Or I don't know, they're just having a low moment. Mm-hmm. How do you turn that dark moment into something that's positive? What are the things that you do to make sure that that happens? I now tend to live where my feet are now. I live in the moment. What's happened's happened. Even if it, what I did happen, whatever everyone's going through, if it even happened a minute ago, you are now in a different place and you now can make a different decision about how you act upon certain things. So you're always in the present. Stay in the present. You don't think about the past and you don't think about the future. And if you think about the past, you look at what you did. Okay, I took drugs X amount of years ago. What am I going to do now? That is it. What am I going to do now? Your boss may have annoyed you. I'm going to go into my office and speak to my boss. I'm going to go and speak to my athletes and tell them X. I'm going to go speak to my wife and say, I'm sorry. I'm going to go speak to my husband and say, I'm sorry. Put your ego down. I would tell my kids... I've got this middle son called Rocco. He's just the worst. <laughs> <laughs> he's a great kid, but he's the worst. He challenges us. And he's always coming home and saying, oh, mom, the teacher's this. And I said, Rocco, please understand, your teacher's probably annoyed. She don't even want to be in that classroom dealing with 29 other students just like you. So her volcano is erupting and you're coming with another volcano erupting. Bring your volcano down. Bring your flames down. And when you want to speak to her, wait to the end of class while her volcano is coming down. But if you both erupt, nothing gets solved. So I've learned to bring myself down. My ego doesn't even come into question. I'll just bring it down because I see the 
power in conversation and talking. There's a lot of power in talking. Let's talk. With that, I've just got one more question to put you on the spot with. What kind of legacy do you hope to leave behind? There's always life after mistakes. Yeah, yeah. There's always life after mistakes. <laughs> I love it, man. That's beautifully said. And with that, that's the episode ended. Dwayne Chambers. That hour already? I know, mate. Jesus. <laughs> no way. I can't believe it. Yeah, no, mate. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. And, and thanks for being here, sharing your story. You're still an absolute legend. I must say. Still got the biceps to show, mate. <laughs> still looking sharp. <laughs> That's what I said to you outside too. But um, thanks for being here, man. Appreciate Pleasure. it. Thank you.